0: chapter twelve of recollections of abraham lincoln eighteen forty seven through eighteen sixty five by ward hill lamon this librivox recording is in the public domain read by john greenman chapter twelve his unswerving fidelity to purpose during the long series of defeats and disasters which culminated in the battles of frederickburg and of Chancellorville there arose in certain circles of the army and of the national legislature a feeling of distrust and dissatisfaction that reached its climax in an intrigue to displace mr lincoln if not from his position at least from the exercise of his prerogatives by the appointment of a dictator such a measure would have been scarcely less revolutionary than many others which were openly avowed and advocated in this cabal were naturally included all those self-constituted advisers whose counsels had not been adopted in the conduct of the war all those malcontents and grumblers who conscious of their incapacity to become makers of pots and pitchers are always so eager to exhibit their skill and ingenuity as menders of them in this coalition of non-combatant guardian angels of the country and civilian warriors were to be found patriots of every shade and of every degree. First, the political patriot, who recognized in a brilliant succession of federal victories the only probable prospect of preserving the ascendancy of his party and promoting his own personal fortunes. Second, the commercial patriot, whose dominant passion was a love of self, to whom the Spoilation of the south and the swindling of his own government afforded the most fruitful expedient for feathering his nest third the religious patriot whose love of country was subordinate to his hatred of slavery and of slaveholders who having recanted his dictum that the constitution of the united states was a covenant with death and an agreement with hell was now one of the most vindictive and unscrupulous advocates of a war of extermination as is frequently the case where one class of persons is severely exercised over the iniquities of another to a sentiment of philanthropy had succeeded the most violent animosity and intolerance until sympathy for the slave degenerated into the most envenomed hostility toward his owner Among the most aggressive assailants of the President were thus comprised all those elements in his party with whom the logic of the war might be summed up in the comprehensive formula power, plunder, and extended rule. The evolution of events, and his consistent policy, as foreshadowed and indicated on the close of hostilities, have clearly demonstrated that with such minds Mr. Lincoln could have little sympathy or fellowship conscientiously observant of his solemn oath to maintain the Constitution, he could not be persuaded to evade the obligations of his high trust by lending his authority to the accomplishment of their revolutionary and nefarious designs, hinc illai lacrimai. Hence, disappointed at the failure of their endeavor to shape his policy in obedience to the suggestions of their own ignoble designs, their open revolt no member of the cabal was better advised of its progress or of the parties concerned in it than mr lincoln himself he often talked with me on the subject he did not fear it he feared nothing except to commit an involuntary wrong or mistake of judgment in the administration of his high and responsible trust he would willingly have resigned office and retired to the unobtrusive life and simple duties of a private citizen if by so doing he could have restored the integrity of the Union, or in any wise have promoted the success of the Union cause, in this connection he would often say to me, In God's name, if any one can do better in my place than I have done, or am endeavoring to do, let him try his hand at it, and no one will be better contented than myself. One time I went to Mr. Lincoln's office at the White House and found the door locked. I went through a private room and through a side entrance into the office, where I found the president lying on a sofa, evidently greatly disturbed and much excited, manifestly displeased with the outlook. Jumping up from his reclining position, he advanced, saying, "'You know better than any man living that from my boyhood up my ambition was to be president. I am president of one part of this divided country at least but look at me i wish i had never been born it is a white elephant on my hands and hard to manage with a fire in my front and rear having to contend with the jealousies of the military commanders and not receiving that cordial cooperation and support from congress which could reasonably be expected with an active and formidable enemy in the field, threatening the very lifeblood of the government. My position is anything but a bed of roses. I remarked to him, "'It strikes me that you are somewhat in the position of the great Richelieu, of whom it was said that he was the first man in Europe, but the second only in his own country.' "'Oh, no, very far from it,' he replied." Richelieu never had a fire in his front and rear at the same time but a united constituency which it has never been my good fortune to have then brightening up his whole nature seemed all at once to change i could see a merry twinkle in his eye as he said if i can only keep my end of the animal pointed in the right direction i will yet get him through this infernal jungle and get my end of him and his tail placed in their proper relative positions. I have never faltered in my faith of being ultimately able to suppress this rebellion and of reuniting this divided country, but this improvised vigilant committee to watch my movements and keep me straight, appointed by Congress and called the Committee on the Conduct of the War, is a marplot, and its greatest purpose seems to be to hamper my action and obstruct the military operations earnestly desirous of conciliating and harmonizing every element with a view to the accomplishment of the one the dearest the aspiration of his heart a restoration of the union mr lincoln had yielded until further concessions would have implied ductility or imbecility until every sentiment of dignity and of self-respect would have uttered an indignant protest. He then well knew that he must assert himself, or be an unimportant factor in the body politic, in the struggle for the life and preservation of the nation, and rising at length to the full height of his matchless self-reliance and independence, he exclaimed, "'This state of things shall continue no longer.' I will show them, at the other end of the avenue, whether I am President or not." From this moment he never again hesitated or wavered as to his course. From this moment he was recognized as the Executive Chief and Constitutional Commander of the Armies and Navy of the United States. His opponents and would-be masters were now, for the most part, silenced. But they hated him all the more cordially. A short time before the fall of Vicksburg, great dissatisfaction became rife at General Grant's tardiness in moving on the enemy's works. There was a pretty general feeling in favor of relieving Grant from his command, and appointing someone who would make short work of that formidable stronghold of the enemy, and relieve the people from their state of anxiety. Mr. Lincoln had great faith in General Grant, He was being constantly importuned and beset by the leading politicians to turn Grant out of the command. One day about this time he said to me, I fear I have made Senator Wade of Ohio my enemy for life. How? I asked. Wade was here just now urging me to dismiss Grant, and in response to something he said I remarked, Senator that reminds me of a story. Yes, yes, Wade petulantly replied. It is with you, sir, all story, story. You are the father of every military blunder that has been made during the war. You are on your road to hell, sir, with this government, by your obstinacy, and you are not a mile off this minute. I good-naturedly said to him, Senator, that is just about the distance from here to the capital, is it not? He was very angry and grabbed up his hat and cane and went away. Lincoln then continued to say, To show to what extent this sentiment prevails, even Washburn, who has always claimed Grant as his by right of discovery, has deserted him and demands his removal, and I really believe I am the only friend Grant has left." grant advises me mr lincoln had never seen general grant up to that time that he will take vicksburg by the fourth of july and i believe he will do it and he shall have the chance had it not been for the stoic firmness of mr lincoln in standing by grant which resulted in the speedy capture of vicksburg it is hard to predict what would have been the consequences if nothing worse certain it is that president lincoln would have been deposed and a dictator would have been placed in his stead as chief executive until peace could be restored to the nation by separation or otherwise mr lincoln thus expressed himself shortly before his death if i had done as my washington friends who fight battles with their tongues at a safe distance from the enemy would have had me do grant who proved himself so great a captain would never have been heard of again that mr lincoln sought to interfere as little as possible with the military affairs after general grant took charge of the army will be shown by the following letter executive mansion washington april thirtieth eighteen sixty four lieutenant general grant not expecting to see you before the spring campaign opens i wish to express in this way my entire satisfaction with what you have done up to this time so far as i understand it the particulars of your plan i neither know nor seek to know you are vigilant and self-reliant and i put no restraints or constraints upon you while i am very anxious that any great disaster or capture of any of our men in great numbers shall be avoided i know that these points are less likely to escape your attention then they would be mine. If there be anything wanting which is within my power to give, do not fail to let me know it. And now, with a brave army and a just cause, may God sustain you. Yours very truly, signed A. Lincoln. I am not aware that there was ever a serious discord or misunderstanding between Mr. Lincoln and General Grant, except on a single occasion. From the commencement of the struggle, Lincoln's policy was to break the backbone of the Confederacy by depriving it of its principal means of subsistence. Cotton was its vital element. Deprive it of this, and the rebellion must necessarily collapse. The Honorable Elihu B. Washburn, from the outset, was opposed to any contraband traffic with the Confederates. Lincoln had given permits and passes through the lines to two persons, mr joseph maddox of maryland and general singleton of illinois to enable them to bring cotton and other southern products from virginia washburn heard of it called immediately on mr lincoln and after remonstrating with him on the impropriety of such a demarche threatened to have general grant countermand the permits if they were not revoked naturally both became excited lincoln declared that he did not believe general grant would take upon himself the responsibility of such an act i will show you sir i will show you whether grant will do it or not responded mr washburn as he abruptly withdrew by the next boat subsequent to this interview the congressman left washington for the headquarters of general grant he returned shortly afterward to the city and so likewise did maddox and singleton grant had countermanded the permits the following important order relative to trade permits was issued by lieutenant-general grant about this time headquarters armies of the u s city point virginia march tenth eighteen sixty five special orders number forty eight one the operations on all treasury trade permits and all other trade permits and licenses to trade by whomsoever granted within the state of virginia except that portion known as the eastern shore and the states of north carolina and south carolina and that portion of the state of georgia immediately bordering on the atlantic including the city of savannah are hereby suspended until further orders all contracts and agreements made under or by virtue of any trade permit or license within any of said states or parts of states during the existence of this order will be deemed void and the subject of such contracts or agreements will be seized by the military authorities for the benefit of the government whether the same is at the time of such contracts or agreements within their reach or at any time thereafter comes within their reach either by the operations of war or the acts of the contracting parties or their agents the delivery of all goods contracted for and not delivered before the publication of this order is prohibited supplies of all kinds are prohibited from passing into any of said states or parts of states except such as are absolutely necessary for the wants of those living within the lines of actual military occupation and under no circumstances will military commanders allow them to pass beyond the lines they actually hold by command of lieutenant general grant t s bowers assistant adjutant general under all the circumstances it was a source of exultation to mr washburn and his friends and of corresponding surprise and mortification to the president but he suppressed the resentment to which general grant's conduct might naturally have given rise and with the equanimity and self-control that was habitual with him merely remarked i wonder when general grant changed his mind on this subject he was the first man after the commencement of the war to grant a permit for the passage of cotton through the lines and that to his own father in referring afterwards to the subject he said it made me feel my insignificance keenly at the moment but if my friends washburn henry wilson and others derive pleasure from so unworthy a victory over me i leave them to its full enjoyment this ripple on the otherwise unruffled current of their intercourse did not disturb the personal relations between lincoln and grant but there was little cordiality between the president and messrs washburn and wilson afterwards Mr. Lincoln, when asked if he had seen the Wade Davis Manifesto, the Phillips Speech, etc., replied, No, I have not seen them, nor do I care to see them. I have seen enough to satisfy me that I am a failure, not only in the opinion of the people in rebellion, but of many distinguished politicians of my own party. But time will show whether I am right or they are right, and I am content. To abide its decision. I have enough to look after without giving much of my time to the consideration of the subject of who shall be my successor in office. The position is not an easy one, and the occupant, whoever he may be, for the next four years, will have little leisure to pluck a thorn or plant a rose in his own pathway. It was urged that this opposition must be embarrassing to his administration as well as damaging to the party. He replied, Yes, that is true, but our friends Wade, Davis, Phillips, and the others are hard to please. I am not capable of doing so. I cannot please them without wantonly violating not only my oath, but the most vital principles upon which our government was founded. As to those who, like Wade and the rest, see fit to depreciate my policy and cavil at my official acts." i shall not complain of them i accord them the utmost freedom of speech and liberty of the press but shall not change the policy i have adopted in the full belief that i am right i feel on this subject as an old illinois farmer once expressed himself while eating cheese he was interrupted in the midst of his repast by the entrance of his son who exclaimed hold on dad there's skippers in that cheese you're eating never mind tom said he as he kept on munching his cheese if they can stand it i can on another occasion mr lincoln said to me if the unworthy ambition of politicians and the jealousy that exists in the army could be repressed and all unite in a common aim and a common endeavor the rebellion would soon be crushed he conversed with me freely and repeatedly on the subject of the unfairness and intemperance of his opponents in congress of the project of a dictatorship etc the reverses at fredericksburg and chancellorsville mr lincoln fully comprehended and he believed them to have been caused by the absence of a proper support of burnside and hooker prompted by the jealousies of other superior officers the appointment of a general to the supreme command of the army of the potomac made vacant by the resignation of general burnside became a question of urgent import general rosecrans was the choice of the secretary of war the president regarded it as inexpedient to make the appointment outside the general officers serving in the army of the potomac having little preference in the selection of a successor to general burnside mr lincoln after advisement adopted the views of the military department of the government and offered the chief command to general reynolds the latter however declined to accept the trust unless a wider latitude of action were granted him than had hitherto been accorded to officers occupying this high post the reverses in the field already referred to having occurred since general mcclellan was relieved from the chief command of the united forces there now arose among his old companions in arms and in the army generally a clamor for his reinstatement as commander of the Army of the Potomac. The propriety of such action was made the subject of a cabinet consultation, which resulted in the rejection of an expedient so manifestly looking towards a dictatorship. A strong influence was now exerted by the immediate friends of General Hooker, in behalf of his appointment as commander-in-chief, some of them being prompted by personal ambition, others by even less worthy motives these partisans of a worthy and deserving officer whose aspirations were known to be entirely within the sphere of military preferment united their forces with a powerful political coterie having for their chief object the elevation of mr chase to the presidency upon the expiration of mr lincoln's first term it was believed by this faction that hooker in the event of his bringing the war to a successful conclusion being himself unambitious of office, might not be unwilling to lend his prestige and influence to a movement in favor of that distinguished statesman as the successor of Mr. Lincoln in the presidency. Up to the present time the war had been conducted rather at the dictation of a political bureaucracy than in accordance purely with consideration of military strategy. Hooker was appointed by the president under a full knowledge of his political affinities. In conversation with Mr. Lincoln one night about the time General Burnside was relieved, I was urging upon him the necessity of looking well to the fact that there was a scheme on foot to depose him and to appoint a military dictator in his stead. He laughed and said, I think for a man of accredited courage you are the most panicky person I ever knew. You can see more dangers to me than all the other friends I have you are all the time exercised about somebody taking my life, murdering me, and now you have discovered a new danger. Now you think the people of this great government are likely to turn me out of office. I do not fear this from the people any more than I fear assassination from an individual. Now, to show you my appreciation of what my French friends would call a coup d'etat, let me read you a letter I have written to General Hooker whom I have just appointed to the command of the Army of the Potomac. He then opened the drawer of his table and took out and read the letter to General Hooker, which accompanied his commission as commander of the Army of the Potomac, of which letter the following is a copy. PRIVATE Executive Mansion, Washington, D.C., January 26, 1863 MAJOR GENERAL Hooker GENERAL I have placed you at the head of the army of the potomac of course i have done this upon what appears to me sufficient reasons and yet i think it best for you to know that there are some things in regard to which i am not quite satisfied with you i believe you to be a brave and skilful soldier which of course i like i also believe you do not mix politics with your profession in which you are right you have confidence in yourself which is a valuable if not indispensable quality you are ambitious which within reasonable bounds does good rather than harm but i think that during general burnside's command of the army you have taken counsel of your ambition solely and thwarted him as much as you could in which you did a great wrong to the country and to a most meritorious and honorable brother officer I have heard, in such a way as to believe it, of your saying that both the country and the army needed a dictator. Of course it was not for this, but in spite of it, that I have given you the command. Only those generals who gain success can set themselves up as dictators. What I ask of you is military success, and I will risk the dictatorship." the government will support you to the utmost of its ability which is neither more nor less than it has done and will do for all its commanders i much fear that the spirit which you have aided to infuse into the army of criticizing their commander and withholding confidence from him will now turn upon you and i shall assist you as far as i can to put it down neither you nor napoleon if he were alive again could get any good out of an army while such a spirit prevails in it. And now, beware of rashness, but with energy and sleepless vigilance, go forward and give us victories. Yours very truly, A. Lincoln. Some little time afterwards, in referring with much feeling to this letter, General Hooker declared, It was just such a letter as a father might have addressed to his son, it was a great rebuke however to me at the time the question of a dictatorship had been everywhere ventilated the president had heard a great deal about it but he treated the whole subject as a pure vagary not apprehending any serious danger from it at first it may have given him some annoyance but it soon ceased to disturb him and ultimately it became the source of no little mirth and amusement to him I was present upon one occasion when a party of the intimate friends of Mr. Lincoln were assembled at the White House, and the project of a dictatorship was the topic of conversation. The President gave full play to the exuberance of his humor and his sense of the ridiculous, entirely banishing the anxieties and apprehensions of such of his friends as were inclined to regard the question from a more serious point of view. "'I will tell you,' said he, "'a story which—' I think illustrates the situation. Some years ago a couple of emigrants from the Emerald Isle were wending their way westward in search of employment as a means of subsistence. The shades of night had already closed in upon them as they found themselves in the vicinity of a large sheet of standing water, more vulgarly called a big pond. They were greeted upon their approach by a symphony of bullfrogs, which was the only manifestation of life in the darkness that surrounded them, literally making night hideous with noise. This sort of harmony was altogether new to them, and for a moment they were greatly terrified at the diabolical din. Instinctively and resolutely grasping their shillelahs, under the impression that Beelzebub or some of his deputies was about to dispute their farther progress, they cautiously advanced toward the spot from whence the strange concert proceeded. The frogs, however, alarmed at their approaching footsteps, had beat a precipitate retreat, and taken refuge in their watery hiding-places, and all was silent as the grave. After waiting for some seconds in breathless suspense for the appearance of the enemy, not a sound being audible in great disappointment and disgust at the loss of so favorable an opportunity for a free flight one of our heroes seizing his companion by the coat sleeve whispered confidentially in his ear faith pat and it's my deliberate opinion that it was nothing but a blasted noise pursuing the topic in the same humorous vein mr lincoln again convulsed his auditors by relating the following story a benighted wayfarer having lost his way somewhat amidst the wilds of our northwestern frontiers the embarrassments of his position were increased by a furious tempest which suddenly burst upon him to add to the discomforts of the situation his horse had given out leaving him exposed to all the dangers of the pitiless storm the peals of thunder were terrific the frequent flashes of lightning afforded the only guide to the route he was pursuing as he resolutely trudged onward, leading his jaded steed. The earth seemed fairly to tremble beneath him in the war of elements. One bolt threw him suddenly upon his knees. Our traveler was not a prayerful man, but finding himself involuntarily brought to an attitude of devotion, he addressed himself to the throne of grace in the following prayer for his deliverance O oh God, hear my prayer this time for thou knowest it is not often that i call upon thee and o lord if it is all the same to thee give us a little more light and a little less noise i hope said mr lincoln pointing the moral of the anecdote that we may have a much stronger disposition manifested hereafter on the part of our civilian warriors to unite in suppressing the rebellion and a little less noise as to how and by whom the chief executive office shall be administered End of chapter twelve his unswerving fidelity to purpose read by john greenman